Hello everyone, welcome to That Food Podcast. My name's Stu and I'm joined as always by my good friend Matt. Matt, how are you doing this week? It's sunny and warm after what feels like a very long damp winter and I'm feeling good. I think yesterday we had the warmest March day since uh, 1968. Uh, so I think that sunny weather is making me feel really good at the moment. And also after today's pod, I'm going to meet a uh, old work colleague uh, for a coffee in a park. So I'm looking forward to that too. How are you, my friend? Oh, awesome. Yeah, not too bad. Um, it was my daughter's fourth birthday this weekend. She unfortunately fell into the category of having two birthdays in lockdown. And when I think about it, it means 50% of her birthdays have been isolated with just me and Leanne. But at least this year we were prepared. Last year we had like a village hall books. We had party stuff ready for all of her little friends to come to. This year, though, where we had to cancel that and just do what we had at home when nobody left their house. We prepared in advance. We hired a bouncy castle. Oh, nice. For the garden. And we also had a piñata to beat the hell out Excellent. of. Which was immensely fun. Um, I don't know if you've been on a bouncy castle much as an adult. Uh, <laughs> I have, yes. <laughs> um, I, I've, um, <laughs> I've mimicked some uh, professional wrestling stars on uh, bouncy castles in the past, shall we say. Uh, did you have a uh, similar experience over the weekend by any chance? Well, yes, and also general bouncing, because we thought Harriet would maybe play on it a little bit, lose interest, start playing with her toys. But it was continually back to the bouncy castle, back to the bouncy castle. And I'll tell you what, it is exhausting jumping <laughs> for what is essentially six hours. But like you said, um, being foolish, and as we haven't been able to wrestle for well over a year now, um, I thought, well, I'll just practice doing a couple of back bumps. I'll do a couple of kip-ups, see if I can do it on a bouncy castle. Because it's easy to do a kip-up on a, on a bouncy castle, so then I can feel agile and athletic. Of course, you've got that extra spring, and, haven't um, you? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, the execution was perfect until as soon as I landed. So, for those of you who don't know, a kip-up is essentially where you lay on your back, then you flip your body up, and you're stood upright. And, again... I, on an actual wrestling ring, I've never really been able to achieve these. I can get up to my feet and I fall back down on my bum. Whereas on a bouncy castle, very easy to do. But I flipped up, I stood up and I was like, that was well executed. Oh, crikey, my oh, shoulder no. really hurts. <laughs> and I felt like I'd bored all the muscles in my shoulders. Again, next day, fine. But my wife, who had bounced on the bouncy castle for about six hours, and I think it was more for her than my daughter, the bouncy castle hire, um, she ached all day long so just be careful on bouncy castles everyone nice uh, public warning there <laughs> Stu to start the show <laughs> how's the sh- how's the shoulder feeling now but, oh absolutely fine it's more the um the long-term quest to be a body guy has obviously been hit by uh birthday lunches lots of birthday cake um but what's quite nice on monday obviously i was at work so i couldn't join in the festivities but now in the uk you're allowed to have up to six people or two households outside in your garden so my in-laws came over to give harriet some birthday presents and i like a true professional sat in my office and ignored them because they're my (laughs) in-laws excellent (laughs) i I ventured out to help build a birthday present i had a couple of meetings um for work so i stuck my head out to say hello between meetings and an hour later they my mother-in-law and my wife still hadn't been able to to build this child's push chair for my daughter's dolls so i went out there five minutes later it was 
put together and it also gave me an excuse to steal yet another piece of delicious chocolate birthday cake excellent so you're kind of with them but you don't really have to interact because you're building this buggy as well so it's quite it's always a good way around isn't it (laughs) exactly um so from my cooking standpoint since uh last week's episode i haven't really done much we've obviously baked the birthday cake um and i've eaten a lot of party food but because we knew that we'd have people coming over i've basically been living off party leftovers other than the recipe of the week which we'll um which we'll get to when we cooked our babute this week um i haven't really done much in the kitchen but you've had a rather you know another wonderful culinary international trip uh remotely haven't you uh we have yeah absolutely so i'd say overall this week we've been fairly quiet with our uh activities in the kitchen um just because i've been focusing on uh interviews and amy's just tired from work and things however uh we did visit um the caribbean uh, this week for a culinary trip um so again as uh, the listeners uh, who are regular to the show know that amy and i do a a monthly at least um uh, world food club as we call it and this month we visited the caribbean uh, to try some of the food uh, in that part of the world so on the menu was uh, jerk sweet potato and black bean curry uh, uh, with jerk pulled pork and then we also had uh, for dessert was um, rum and coconut um, treacle tart which was lovely and that was served with a little bit of um, rum cream as well so take double cream stick some rum in some icing sugar as well whip it up until it thickens and that was really really good um, but the real star of the show for me at least anyway was the banana salsa stew what do you think about that I saw a picture of this banana salsa and it looked incredible. How was it? How pliable was it? Because again, a lot of people, if they're making salsas, they've never seen anyone use a banana in this before. So how was that? No, it's the first I've heard of it. Um, I loved it. I really, I mean, because in the banana salsa, you've got the uh, the banana, obviously, but then you mix in some ingredients that you wouldn't associate with a banana necessarily. So you've got red onion, um, avocado, which traditionally goes into guacamole, uh lemon juice lime juice coriander and red chilies as well so there was a real sort of sweet and spicy mix going on there and we um had it as a side with the curry and the pulled pork and actually i ended up sticking it in a in a wrap and oh it's so good so so good i had the curry the uh, pulled pork and the banana salsa in this wrap and it was delicious Amy, on the other hand, she wasn't as keen. She's not a fan of banana-flavoured things. So she likes bananas as a banana on its own, but if you kind of flavour things with bananas, so whether it be, uh, I don't know, banana sweets and things like that or um, other things, banana puddings maybe, she's not as keen. So this salsa wasn't for her, but for me it was spot on. It really uh, complemented the, the, uh, the dish. See, back on the banana flavourings, I can't remember I mentioned this on last week's pod, so I apologise if I do. Um, we served up some banana angel delight a couple of weeks ago for Harriet. And yes. similar to, to Amy's viewpoints on banana flavoured things, Harriet looked at this banana angel delight and I'm paraphrasing now, but I think it was, she was a case of, uh, this isn't butterscotch angel <laughs> delight. So well done. That's so the right answer. You've taught her well, Stu. Well done. <laughs> Uh, good parenting. But on the subject of teachings, uh, it leads us nicely into food in the news. And 
apologies if it's going to start off by being a little bit negative on a food okay. and news uh, topic. I've There's been a couple of uh, news articles and research bits about chicken welfare. Um, uh, there, there's especially an article in The Independent which is looking at something which has been essentially dubbed Franken-chickens. So these are the chickens which are essentially forced to grow up fast. Their bodies simply collapse under their own weight, routinely suffering sort of lameness and sometimes even heart attacks. They're killed within five to six weeks and they can essentially spend their final days in agony. Now, there was hope post-Brexit that a lot of this welfare could change because a lot of this can sort of follow EU guidelines on on the welfare of chickens and there's uh there's something called the better chicken commitment which is a globally recognized animal welfare initiative and it requires a company to meet higher welfare standards for all their chickens by 2026 such as using slower growing breeding and giving animals more room and uh the government said it would essentially phase out franken chicken breeding completely which is excellent excellent news from that standpoint in the UK, some retailers, such as Waitrose, Marks and & Spencers and KFC, along with all major French retailers and over 200 companies across Europe, have signed up to this commitment. However, based on the research in this article, it appears that quite a lot of big British names have failed to sign up for this commitment and are certainly not trying to move away from essentially these Franken-chickens. So these companies include people like Tesco's, the Co-op and Morrison's, and they've chosen to continue to sell these chickens who are essentially treated as, as Franken-chickens. Yet, because of there's no real standards on highlighting on, on these packaging that how, where these chickens come from, um, these supermarkets and these companies are still saying they're selling of them of you know, quite high levels. And I think it's about, um, the research paper said, 89% of people think that these chickens should be better better protected than they are. So it's one of those things that it's not about being preachy. I'm not telling you to not go and buy chicken because chicken is expensive. And the reason why Tesco's and Co-op and Morrison's can all sell chicken for affordable prices for us is because of the way that these Franken chickens are farmed. What my gripe is is that it seems to be that a lot of these companies like KFC, like M&S, like Waitrose, are all taking the financial hit themselves with a view to be meeting these um, these new global standards by 2026 and still keeping the prices of their, for lack of a better term, battery chicken, so their mass-produced chicken. Because, I mean, we produce, I think it's over a billion chickens just for consumption in the UK alone. And... It's nice that they are taking the financial hit uh, to be able to provide better welfare standards for these chickens. And it would be really nice if some of these other companies, especially of a company the size of Tesco, um, would be able to get on board with this. And again, all supermarkets are doing as much as they can for the environment. Obviously, we've seen a lot of these like plastic-free initiatives that people are doing. I know we've both said behind closed doors, uh, for collecting our orders from Tesco's. We like going bagless collections because it's better reduces the plastics. And now the supermarkets even have the ability to take any of those plastic bags, put them in specific recycling areas. But that's in store at the moment. So things like Tesco's, I've got, sometimes they put bag liners in, even though I don't ask them to. I try and leave them behind. Sometimes they have to come back because I can reuse them for other things. So bin liners in my house. 
But at the moment, where you've got to queue sometimes to go into a supermarket for half an hour, 40 minutes in some cases, I appreciate they can't leave all these recycling things outside, but it just makes more sense post-COVID for people to use them. And I just hope that these supermarkets start looking more at better welfare for their chickens and all animals in general. It's just chickens obviously covered in this week's article. And it will always, I know it sounds really carnivorous and especially apologies to our vegan and vegetarian listeners, but the quality of chicken, if they are fed better, if they've got better welfare, the taste is always substantial. They're not injected with water to puff out the size of the chicken breast or whatever you buy. It's a better quality of living for that animal. And, you know, it's it's the food cycle. It's, you know, it's how everything goes. But I just found it remarkable that some of these big businesses still hadn't signed up to this global recommendation. Yeah. And what do you suggest is the option? And do you think that government should subsidize this idea? And therefore, you know, the likes of KFC, Waitrose, etc. aren't having to foot the bill. Um, and it may encourage Tesco's and Morrison's uh, and the other that haven't signed up to perhaps sign up. Is that the way forward? Yeah, I think some form of government initiative, because as we're trying to become a little bit more health conscious, welfare conscious, now we can control our own rules. We're not tied down to the EU uh, side of things from a from a Brexit standpoint. We should be able to take control of what we want to do with our animal welfare. And as I said, I don't, I'm not saying people don't go and buy this chicken because the cost between these essentially franken chicken and if you went for an organic chicken you're looking at maybe an extra two to three pounds for just a portion of two chicken breasts it is crazy how much the difference is in cost so i'd like to see government subsidize these farms subsidize these companies to have better animal welfare does that mean in the long run the wealthier would have to pay more tax to potentially fund this that's for a completely different podcast on finance etc but I, but I think some form of government initiative would be helpful. And then that could then stretch across the board for all animal welfare, which go, goes into the food system. Yeah, and I think, you know, ways to kind of commit yourself to this uh, as a, uh, a consumer. Um, what do you think the ways, or the best ways to kind of do that? Obviously, labelling is important, but I'm assuming there's no legislation that says you have to put that's a franken chicken or not a franken chicken um and the other side of things is do you just opt out completely and go vegetarian or vegan you know it's, which shouldn't necessarily have to be the way forward um if we can just look at better ways to farm animals in in, in general and then have clearer um labeling again going back to that uh, at least we can make more informed decisions yeah. Um, so what the uh, they have on the independent, some of their journalists have got petitions to, again, lobby big business, to lobby government for these things. So if this is something that you'd be interested in, head to the independent website, have a look at some of their food articles. You'll find the bits on the Franken chicken um, available on that website. So if you want to go and sign any of these petitions or get a bit more information about the sort of this global um, this global plan, go and have a read there. But I'll switch to something a bit jollier. Um, as you mentioned, the sun is out. The weather's starting yep. to get warmer. 
Mm-hmm. Would you like a reason to be able to start drinking more wine? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I need a reason tax, but oh, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so, sorry, would you like a way to justify drinking more wine? Oh, yes, please, go on. <laughs> so obviously, as the sun is coming out, it means we're going to have more and more pesky flies knocking around our houses, our gardens, wherever we are. And I think a main staple in a lot of households, you're going to have a fruit bowl at some yes. point. So, obviously, one of the things that uh, flies and fruit flies love to do, as they're attracted by the sugar and moisture of, of fresh fruit, they head over to your fruit. Now, are you ready? I, if you're eating your lunch at the moment, if you're eating a bit of fruit, <laughs> get ready for this stat, and I hope you've washed your fruit before I tell you this. <laughs> Where Did are we you going know? with this? <laughs> <laughs> Look at me already. Ruining people if they're having a chicken sandwich. I'm going to ruin their lunches if they're having a bit of fruit. Did you know that fruit flies lay 500 eggs at a time on fruit in your kitchen? Oh. Uh... <laughs> no, not really. I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> so, wouldn't it be nice to have a way to stop the fruit flies coming in here and also enjoy a lot of wine? Uh, it would be lovely. Yeah, that kills uh, two birds with one stone in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a method of keeping flies away, and it's by just putting wine corks in your fruit bowl. Oh, really? So how's how's that work? What's the science there? So the the wine cork itself absorbs the moisture from the ripening fruit, so that obviously stops the attraction to flies, and also the wine corks put off a fragrance that repel the bugs. So Double double bubble there. It keeps the flies away so they're not laying any eggs. And also, you need to, you know, responsible reuse of items from your household. Wine cork. <laughs> Into the fruit bowl. <laughs> and ready to go from there. Well, this means I'm going to have to start buying more expensive wine that actually comes with a cork. Because <laughs> most, <laughs> <of the> stuff... <laughs> most of the stuff we buy is the uh, screw top. So... <laughs> It's like I, I have an excuse to buy more expensive wine now as well. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're going to be one of these people who have box wines where you have to insert the tap. <laughs> oh, don't, because we have been there. <laughs> <laughs> Last summer was a long summer, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that that's you know a helpful tip to go through. Um, and last piece of um, food news, again, is, is an interesting research paper. I do apologise that this does seem to be quite negative food news uh, this week, but it's it's all food for thought, for excuse the pun. <laughs> so, um, a couple of research companies in the US have been monitoring uh, people's health for about a 15-year period. And they've found out that dining out regularly um, could lead, as in a significant cause, to early death. Oh, lovely. So we've gone from Franken-chicken to early death. Thank you very much, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. And 500 fly eggs on your fruit. <laughs> Happy so, days. Basic, so I think, again, this the research paper seems to be you know common sense, in, in all honesty. So obviously, if people are going to be eating out a lot, they're going to be having a higher calorific intake. They're going to have higher risks of obesity, um, issues with heart problems, heart attack, and, and essentially early onset death if they continue to eat out all the time. The thing that surprised me the most about this research paper, other than people are surprised by this, that if you eat out a lot and don't have a balanced diet that you die, 
it seems to be the fact that even if you have quite a healthy lifestyle, if you have meals out three to four times a week, even if you then have a healthy lifestyle, apparently according to this research paper, you still have a higher risk because of the mass consumption you have on those days can still affect your internal organs. And I thought, again, through what we've covered before, everything in moderation, it was a... I, I wouldn't say it's a flawed paper, but I think it's very difficult to gauge over, even with a 15-year period, if this is a legitimate cause for concern, especially um, in a world where, you know, anything's available for people to read online on the internet. And I just thought, is this report a bit of scaremongering? Who knows? Well, I can see the logic behind it, because if you're eating out you're more likely to have as you say richer food more calories in the food um potentially more processed food as well depending on where you're going and then uh you know cooks and things will often uh, reach for the salt and the sugar as well to put in dishes to sort of heighten the flavors of things and again they're you know in higher quantities can be bad for your health so i can certainly see the logic there but yeah maybe jumping ahead to a conclusion but again you know, as you say, everything in moderation, isn't it? And that's, that's really the key here. And that's one of the reasons behind this podcast. You do not need to go out for fancy meals. You can stay and cook our recipes of the week, which is, which is this week. I mean, obviously, as you said, you had your Caribbean adventure. We took a little trip to South Africa for our recipe of the week this week. We cooked um, babute. Uh, various pronunciations of this seem to be on the internet, but I'm going with uh, what is on the BBC Good Food recipe of how to pronounce it, and also on Wikipedia, uh, how they've said to pronounce it. If it's on Wikipedia, it's bound to be true. Exactly. There's nothing inaccurate there. So you don't need to go out for meals, everyone. You can cook at home. You can cook relatively straightforward, very simple dishes. Um, But before we get into the cooking of our dish, I just thought I'd go into a bit of the history of, essentially, one of the national dishes of South Africa. Nice. So, the origin of the word babuti is contentious. Um, The Afrikaans uh, dictionary claims that the probable origin is a Malayan word, uh, bombo, meaning curry spices, and others think it originated from the um, bobotok, which is an Indonesian dish which has consisted of totally different ingredients to a babute. The first recipe of babute appeared in a Dutch cookbook in 1609. And afterwards, it was taken to South Africa and adopted uh, by the Cape Malay community. Um, It's also made uh, with curry powder, leaving it with its slight tang to it. And it's often served with something called um, sambal, um, have you ever heard of sambal before? I haven't, but I'm sure you're going to tell me what it is. So they, they, they sometimes serve it. So sambal is essentially like a chilli sauce or a paste, and it's made from a variety of chilli peppers and a secondary ingredient, maybe shrimp paste, garlic, ginger, uh, plum sugar, a few bits mixed in with it. Um, the dish has been known um, in the Cape of Good Hope since the 17th century, when it was made with a mixture of mutton and pork. Um, the recipes were transported by South African settlers to other parts of Africa. 
So different types of recipes can be found in Kenya, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. Um, and it was also um, found to be by um, 7,000 Boer settlers in Argentina in the early 20th century. And that's where they had a babuti mixture, which is made inside a large pumpkin and then baked with everything on the inside of it. So I thought that was quite interesting from there. Nice. But, but to show how key it is as a national dish, um, babuti was selected in the 2008 Masters Golf Champions, uh, Champions Dinner. So um, each year in golf, the reigning champion gets to essentially pick the dish and host the gathering. So they picked this for the Masters um, Championship. So everyone who was attending this Champions Deal got to experience the delicious taste of babute. And I came across this recipe just on a whim. I was trying to find recipes, as I mentioned on um, our pod last week, um, and again, find our archives on your podcast app of choice. Um, just search for that food podcast. I said last week, obviously, I started a new job, and a lot of the territories that we work in uh, around the world, so we've got the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK, Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Africa. And I've never really experienced much of the food culture from South Africa. And to be honest, other than the World Cup in 2010, where everyone loved hearing a Vuvuzela for most of the uh, most of the World Cup, I didn't know much about the economy. I didn't know much about the lifestyle, certainly not the food culture. Um, but also, I wasn't aware of any of the wildlife that was... Uh, knocking, knocking around for lack of a better term in South Africa, and I was wondering if you'd be able to shed some light on it with your, with your knowledge of this topic. Yeah, I can uh, certainly cover some of that. So, um, I mean, if anyone listening has ever been on a African safari, um, or I don't know, perhaps much like myself, where you're a bit of a fan of wildlife documentaries, um, often host, hosted by the lovely David Attenborough. I'll give him a bit of a shout out. Um, chances are that you may have heard of the Big Five, uh, which are the sort of must-see list of iconic African animals that you uh, hope to see on your safari. Um, so, list of the Big Five, uh, they consist of lions and then uh, leopards, so a couple of big cats. Um, also, my wife's favourite, which is the African elephant. Um, so, Amy used to work with... Um, elephant during her time as a zookeeper but actually she did get the chance to see them in the wild as well because she did some work out in South Africa um, before I met her she um, worked out there in various sort of animal sanctuaries and things like that um, and also the African buffalo and finally the last one of the big five list is the rhino who um, a friend of the podcast Helen cares for so wonderfully in her role as a zookeeper at Howlett's Wild Animal Park, um, located here in Kent. But Stu, did you know there is, obviously you got the big five, but did you know there's also an ugly five? Have you been looking at my social media posts again? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, apparently there's a, um, there's a lot of animal lists um, when you go on safari in Africa. Um, so the list of ones again that you hope to see and perhaps this is the list that no animal wants to be on and it's the ugly five list so in the ugly five we have the warthog we have the vulture as well um wildebeest 
which I've actually worked with before during my zookeeper days. Um, it's a type, type of antelope species, and they are... I don't think any of these animals are ugly, I should mention. Um, but the wildebeest are very scatty compared to some animals that I've worked with. So we used to feed them out in the enclosure. Um, and we it's a very large enclosure, so we, so we had um, land rovers to move around, and then we'd get out of the vehicle and then feed in troughs or along the ground, whatever's appropriate at the time. And uh, most stuff were very kind of slow moving, quite respectful. Um, they'd come and eat their food and not too much of a concern, but the wildebeest, <laughs> they were so scatty. Um, they would sort of charge towards, they'd follow you in your Land Rover anticipating the food. Um, and then you'd sort of have to kind of rush into position so you can put the food out before they reach you. Otherwise, they wouldn't purposely be aggressive or anything like that. Um, but they're just sort of very random movements. It's just something to be aware of. Uh, so they were certainly interesting species to work with. Um, but that's three of the five. The final two are the Marab marabou stork, which is uh, quite a large bird. Um, and finally is, and I'm certainly going to put an argument in for this one, is the hyena. So again, I don't personally think any of these animals are ugly in any way. Um, perhaps a little bit quirky to look at. Um, and the hyena in particular gets quite a lot of bad press in the media often portrayed as sort of being the evil character in um, films and cartoons such as The Lion King. Uh, great film, um, but they do portray uh, hyenas in a bad light. Um, but actually they're very um, loving and family orientated creatures. Um, and also, a little fun factoid here, somewhere in Africa, there is a hyena called Van Wicked. <laughs> Amazing. So, I think that's really unfair calling those guys ugly ones. I mean, I know people aren't going to sit there and go to the gift shops afterwards and go, I really want to buy a cuddly vulture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so they've I all got... got their own little uh, characteristics, haven't they? But my friend uh, Michelle, who lived and worked in Africa, uh, she actually studied groups of hyena. And she very kindly named a uh, hyena after me. Um, so I don't know how to take that now that I know it's in the big five of the ugly list. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> I should uh, you know, take it as a compliment any longer. Um, but just speaking of names, um, I just want to pick up on something from earlier in the podcast. And you may pick up on it from time to time, listener. But I called Stu Tax. And that's his wrestling uh, pseudonym. So if I ever do call Stu Tax at any point during the podcast, just ignore me, move on. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's now such a second nature thing for me. It's just, I mean, I know we've mentioned wrestling uh, in the past in the pod. It's uh, certainly a very odd uh, profession, an odd industry where you really only refer to each other in a lot of times as, as a stage name. Um, yeah. I mean, one of our one of our good wrestling colleagues, uh, Louis. And also I should say his daughter's been some wonderful cooking again this week. So Paloma's been in the kitchen doing some wonderful, wonderful things. So it's great to see her always in the kitchen. But when sort of first started to socialize with, with Louis, um, who goes under the wrestling name Will Power, he, meant, he messaged me and said, oh, I'm not used to calling you Stu. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we, we've been associated for over a year. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's quite an an odd one. And linking back again to South Africa, um, there is a a wrestling promotion in South Africa called Black Gold Wrestling, 
who had approached me at one time to be their commentator. To which point I said, yes, I'd love to be your commentator. And do you want to know how many messages I've had from this promotion since then? (laughs) You tell me, go on. Well, it's less than one. (laughs) (laughs) Can I guess? Hang on, let me me slip in there. Zero. Correct. Correct, correct. So, uh, but if I were to ever... um, do any commentating for black gold wrestling i would certainly make sure i get into the spirit by cooking our recipe of the week um so as we said we used a recipe from the bbc good food website which we post out on our social media platforms at that food pod across uh, facebook twitter and instagram and so i'll just run down a list of the ingredients that were in this week's recipe which is babute and i also said we would cook it with yellow rice so i'll go through both so for the babute you would need, if you're making the full-size portion that would serve six people, we would have two slices of white bread, two onions, 25 grams of butter, two cloves of garlic, one kilogram of lean minced beef, two tablespoons of curry madras paste, some dried herbs, cloves of garlic, allspice berries, two tablespoons of peach or mango chutney. Have you ever heard of peach chutney before? Nope, I went for mango. Me too. I couldn't find peach anywhere. Uh, we had three tablespoons of sultanas and six bay leaves, full cream, and two large eggs for this. So other than the allspice berries, very readily available items. And then for the yellow rice, um, we had... Oh, I've selected the, select, I've selected the <laughs> wrong page of notes uh, for, for, my, for the pod. Um, you'd need 350 grams of basmati rice, some more butter... Some caster sugar, ground cinnamon or a cinnamon stick, cardamom pods that were shelled and the seeds crushed, some turmeric and some raisins. So um, I know I messaged you this on on Twitter, suggesting that all spice berries were not readily available from my local supermarket. Did you struggle to find any of the other ingredients for this week's recipe? I, as you say, I did not find the berries. Uh, so I actually went for allspiced, um, well, ground allspice, should I say, which I did find in my supermarket with no problem. Um, otherwise, it's fairly simple to find. We actually used um, bay leaf, which we, uh, sounds so pretentious right now, we picked it on a walk. <laughs> so... <laughs> Excellent job. Um, yeah, we found a, a, a bay tree bush um on a walk uh outside the front of someone's house actually um i'm sure they won't mind and we t- so the secret ingredient <laughs> is crime in this dish <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> and yeah we picked a um a twig's worth of bay leaf um and we used it in you the dish. thieved a twig's worth of bay leaf. <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm sorry openly admitting uh, bay leaf crime on the podcast I'm sure we'll get to worse <laughs> as the weeks and months go on. Um, so again, I uh, couldn't find allspice berries in my local supermarket. However, I was doing an Amazon order for a few bits, and I noticed I you can literally get anything from Amazon, and they had allspice berries from their pantry section. Oh. So I had them delivered to me. However, from my ingredients standpoint, because again, on the subject of food wastage, I, we only have wholemeal bread for some reason, in our house. So I didn't go and buy specifically a loaf of white bread to do it. So I used brown bread for my uh, for my babute. And I only had long grain whole... I had whole grain uh, basmati rice, 
which we will get to the negatives of that in the dish later. But again, everything else, all very easy ingredients to find. I would have liked to try peach chutney. I couldn't find any so like you. I used the mango chutney. Um, so if you've never heard of babuta, it's basically like a masaka dish. You've got the, the meat base and the topping you put on top is the full cream milk or full fat milk and the eggs beat together and tipped over the top and you bake it in the oven for 35 to 40 minutes. Really, really simple dish to make. How did you find the preparation of this? I loved it. It was, uh, the preparation wise, it was really straightforward. Like I say, it was um, like a misaka dish or a more interesting sort of shepherd's pie sort of esque dish, I suppose. and the preparation was absolutely fine. The The smell of the ingredients going into the pan was fantastic. You've got all these nice different um, sort of aspects of the ingredients. So you've got the spice from the, the madras paste, and then you've got the sort of sweetness from the, the, the mango chutney. Um, and we start to heat that up in a pan. The, the smell of it initially really hits you and it's, uh, it makes you really look forward to the dish as well. So right from the off, right from the cooking, uh, it, it's enticing. It's really nice when you cook a dish like this because you know you're going to be on a winner purely based on the aroma coming out of the initial cooking stages. Mm. And the nice thing about this dish is you've got it, obviously you, you cook off the onions, you cook off the mince and the spice and the curry paste. You can then leave it to simmer for 10 minutes, covered on the, with the lid on, or covered with however you choose to cover your, <laughs> cover your, uh, <laughs> your cooking uh, pans. And then you can leave it to chill. You don't need to add the uh, the egg and milk topping. So if you wanted to make this the night before, chill it in the fridge and then just pour the topping on it when you come home from work and just pop it in the oven for 35, 40 minutes. It's one of these nice dishes where you can do prep the night before, leave it and cook it at another, another point in time. But as Matt was saying, the smells of this dish, and also then we'll get onto it when we start cooking the yellow rice, it was so aromatic. It was really nice. Even my daughter, who hates anything spicy, came and said that how nice that it smelt. And I was like, do you want to try some? No. Brilliant. Thanks very much. <laughs> Get out of my kitchen, child. That's a step in the right direction, though, isn't it? The other part of the process, which I thought was a stroke of genius, was the addition of bread. I've never would have considered putting bread in, into a dish um, similar to this. No, I mean, the whole process, so whilst you're browning off the mince, cooking the onions, you leave a bit of bread just in water in a bowl to soak. So you soak it in in water until you get ready to the final stage of the dish, where you then squeeze out the excess water in the soaked bread and mix it in with your meat, onions, curry spices. And what a stroke of genius. What absolute stroke of genius this is. How did you find uh, ringing wet bread? How was that process for you? I, I got Harriet to join in with me. And <laughs> for some reason, I don't know if it's a, a children's program she started watching now, but she just said to me in a very bad accent, ew, this is gross. <laughs> Putting on a little American accent. Um, yeah, I can't say I've ever rung bread before, but it was uh, interesting. And the the addition of the bread kind of thickens the consistency of the, the, the dish, doesn't it? So it... Um, or the the other ingredients bind to the bread, right? And it kind of really thickens it up, um, which again, genius, really genius. And then through that process, the the uh, egg topping sits nicely on top, doesn't it? And then forms a nice uh, sort of thick layer of 
I don't want to say scrambled egg, but cooked egg on top, isn't it? Yeah, I think the bread, as, as you said, the bread is important because had you not done this to add that extra degree of thickness, I think the egg mix would have just filtered in between essentially the, the, the bits of the minced beef. Yeah. So it really added to it. I said it added to the consistency. So when you come to serve it, the portion stayed pretty whole i do have a quick sidebar on uh, soaking things in water and my wife always thinks this is horrendous um so when i was younger and don't you don't need to get out the violins dear listener um my family didn't have much money so it's a sort of thing where and not for a sub story there'd be days where my mum would go out with eating food so me my brother and my dad could have food but when we had things like cereal weetabix obviously it absorbs quite a lot of milk as well as pouring the milk on top. So what my family would used to do is we would take our two Weetabix, we would tip water into the bowl to absorb the water, then we would then tip the excess water out and then pour milk on top. And I thought, well, that's an ingenious way to avoid too much uh, milk usage. And I told this to my wife when we first started seeing each other all those many years ago. And she thought it was the most disgusting thing <laughs> she had ever heard. But from a cost-saving standpoint, it never impacted my enjoyment of Weetabix. A, another top tip from that food podcast, ladies, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't recommend doing it for making a sandwich, though. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't recommend it for a sandwich. Um, but as you said, you then pour the egg on top, egg milk wash on top, pop it in the oven 35-40 minutes at 180 on your oven or 164 fan so whilst i was uh cooking this in the oven i put my daughter to bed and then came downstairs to make the yellow rice some people obviously i know matt you've got a rice cooker now to help you with your rice creation a lot of people get a bit funny with rice and they always go oh one cup of rice one cup of water let all the water absorb this is a if you're using all the correct ingredients would be a faultless rice preparation so as I mentioned earlier in the ingredients, you have to put butter in with cooking this rice, which is very, very, very indulgent. But basically, you put all the ingredients in the pan with 500 ml of water if you're making the full portion, turn the heat up until it's boiling and the butter's melted, stir it, cover it, leave it to simmer for six minutes, take it off the heat for fi- and leave it covered for five minutes, fluff it up with a rice, fluff it up with a rice, fluff it up with a <laughs> fork, <laughs> and you've got delicious rice, and it's good to go. Um... How did you find the rice preparation? Because I found the smells of this again were astonishing. So I was in two minds with this because obviously you mentioned I do have a rice cooker. So I was tempted to try that. However, I I thought on this occasion I'd stick to the sort of suggested um, method on the recipe. One, because, you know, that's part of the uh, the game that that we do week in, week out with the podcast. But also... um, I just wasn't sure with the ingredients that include butter and things like that if it might, I don't know, perhaps ruin the um, the rice cooker. So I was a bit dubious about that. However, cooking it in a pan was absolutely fine until I started smelling a burning smell in the background. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Do I owe you another pan? <laughs> I think you might owe me another pan. I do have a <laughs> slight quibble this week. <laughs> So, yeah, our largest uh, pan is no longer in use currently, just because it is um, welded with rice <laughs> on the bottom. Um, so, yes, we I followed the instructions um, as per the instructions. 
and they uh, everything's going swimmingly. Left it in for the amount of time suggested, and you know I should have maybe been monitoring it a little closer. But uh, the first thing that alerted me to the the problem there was was the smell of burning, um, and I thought, where's where's that coming from? That's a uh, that's, that doesn't sound good. And I thought, well, check the oven. No, that's fine. Oh, the rice is burning. Okay, so the sort of bottom layer had uh, had browned a bit more than I would have liked. Um, however, all the stuff on top was um, fine, absolutely fine. So we we used that. We managed to eat and have enough for the meal. And um, you know, I have to say that again, the, the smell of it was delicious. Um, the mixtures of the sort of sweetness and the the, the spices as well. Um, the addition of the raisins and the uh, the cinnamon too um again nice mix of ingredients made it very uh, uh interesting from a, a nasal point of view um even before i started to sit down and eat it i did hit a small problem with the rice um so luckily mine didn't burn but as i said i didn't use uh plain basmati rice i used whole grain basmati rice so already i thought well i don't know if this is going to take on the color that i want it to it did take on the color but i found as with a lot of things we use the um the wholemeal or whole grain rice that it's got a bite to it but i found this had too much of a bite to it it's almost i felt like this recipe didn't work with my whole grain rice because there was still too much bite to it the flavor was was excellent but it had too much of a of a crunch it's like as i said you'd the sort of rice you'd find in maybe a rice salad you're expecting to have a bit of a bite to it so while the flavors are there it's one of those things that if i were to cook this dish again i definitely try and get just plain white basmati rice i suppose on the plus side since you had um whole grain and wholemeal bread as well is that right yeah that's right uh you are you know hitting your targets with getting fewer processed foods in your diet so that's good you know yeah um but obviously i would say overall this whole dish was brilliant it was such an interesting concept such a good mix of ingredients that complement each other with the savory and the sweet and the spice mixing it in certainly more more of a fan of the babuti than i was of the yellow rice but i think that's just down to the bite of the um the whole grain um basmati that i used um quite a lot of butter in this dish i mean when you look at the portion the the calorific portion so as i said if you follow the ingredients um to the recipe and you do the full size portion a it will serve six for each of these and if you have um per portion you are looking at 386 calories for a portion of babute which for an evening meal isn't bad so 386 um quite high in the old uh, fat content of 16 grams but still um quite a quite a nice treat so that's 386 for a portion of babute the rice recipe also serves six can you guess uh, or if you notice it off the top of your head what was the calorific value of a portion of this rice uh i think the way that it set me up it's going to be quite high uh so with the butter and the fruit uh as well as the rice obviously um i'm going to say more than the actual main dish itself so let's go for four three two 
Not bad. It's 313 calories wow. for a portion of rice. Wow. So, and and that's, as you said, where you've got, um, so you're looking at just over 50 grams of basmati rice dry. Um, again, just under 10 grams of butter to go with it. But when you put that in a tablespoon of raisins, it really does all add up. I mean, the carb value in this was like 61 grams Whoa. Um, for this. So if I were to have this dish again, I would certainly do the babute again because 386 for a portion of babute. Similar, and I've got leftovers today, so I'm going to be having it for my lunch with some salad um, nice. later today. I think a dinner that's under 500 calories with that, maybe either plain rice, uh, use cauliflower rice, or simply just have it with a green salad. I think that would be a nice, healthy dinner, packed full of flavour, keeps you full. But the rice, while it was nice, I, from my you know dietary requirements and how I found it, I certainly wouldn't go for the yellow rice again. I'm the opposite. I really enjoyed the rice. I thought it was a really nice addition to the dish. And it, again, it might be the type of rice that you used to cook the dish that perhaps didn't make it as nice as it could be. But for me, I really enjoyed this. And actually, aside from the um, the fact that I, I burnt the pan, it was super easy to make. So, you know, I, I certainly would do this. In fact, the whole dish itself, um, without exaggeration, is probably my favourite dish that we've done for the podcast. I really enjoyed this one. I enjoyed making it, um, as I quite often do. I do enjoy the cooking process. But I really, really enjoyed um, eating this one as well. And we, we, much like yourself, we had uh, leftovers, which we had the sort of following... A uh, couple of days, and it was uh, nice again, um, reheated, and I loved it. And you know, if I, you, you watch uh, Great British Bake Off, don't you? I do, yeah. And I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, poor Hollywood handshake. Of course. <laughs> well, this dish gets the Huntley handshake because oh my goodness, <laughs> first ever Huntley handshake on the pod. Uh, this dish gets it. Well done, Stu. Absolutely fabulous. Good choice. I would agree with you. This is my favourite dish we've done so far because it's it was so easy to make but so flavourful and it gets people, I think if you're afraid of spice, maybe take down like the uh, reduce, like the heat of it so maybe instead of using madras paste maybe use masala paste instead to take a little bit of the heat out of it but still all the flavours of like the cardamom seeds, having all of that mixed in there, either all spice or all spice berries, it works so well. So if you're into your spices, give this dish a go. If you're a bit too, if you're not overly keen on spicy food, and to be fair, this wasn't overly spicy. It had a nice warmth to it, mm-hmm. uh, I, I found. I didn't sit there and think I had to grab a glass of milk or grab a, grab a glass of water after enjoying this. It's a nice warmth to it. If you like spicy things, this is right up your street. If you're not a fan of spicy things, give it a try. try. Just maybe replace the masala, the madras paste for something like a masala paste. Uh, yeah, and I'd um, potentially, you know, um, I don't know uh, what I'm trying to say here, be the opposite of what you're saying and say, actually, the, the spice for me, and it's my palate as well, so it might be different for you guys, but the... The spicy aspect was actually balanced really, really nicely with the the sweet aspect from the um, mango chutney, and I think the two really balanced each other out. And again, for me, this is a 
a more interesting way to do something that is pure comfort food. So if you do like your shepherd's pie and things like that, and lasagna and what have you, masaka, um, but you're looking for something a little bit different, a little bit spicier, um, definitely try this dish. I'd highly recommend it. The only thing I would say for if you're in training for anything, for similar to I've had my dinners mainly of birthday cake and party food and then my babute this week, um, I am going to be needing to do quite a bit of exercise to do it and start really hitting, uh, knocking down my BMI. Uh, as that seems to be a big key thing for people's waistlines at the moment. People are looking at that, especially as we come out of lockdown. Gyms are going to open again on the 12th of April. People are excited about working out again. As you'd expect in lockdown, people have comfort eaten because there's nothing else to do. So a lot of people may have gained a few pounds and their doctors may look at them and go, oh, your BMI is now in the obese or the morbidly obese section. And I've never been a fan of BMI, but all medical professionals seem to lean to it. And I know that you've had similar thoughts, especially through your your educational side of things for the, the, the strength and conditioning bits. And obviously people look at BMI in, in all levels of fitness. And you've had a lot of experience of whether or not BMI is actually a worthwhile measuring tool. I have. So I've looked into um, BMI in the past through my studies that I've done previously in um, my strength coaching and um, my nutrition course as well. And uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that today and kind of look at the pros and cons of the, the BMI. So BMI body mass index. Uh, so essentially it's an easy to calculate measure of obesity based on the ratio of your uh, weight and your height. Um, it's a really convenient um, way because it doesn't require expensive equipment or any sort of clinical setting to measure. All you really need to know, again, is your height and weight to be able to figure out your uh, BMI. Um, so it's a useful uh, tool and it's a good way to get a general idea if uh, you're at a risk of disease. Uh, but BMI isn't perfect. And while it's beneficial in some circumstances, it has some major limitations if you're trying to use it as a gauge to uh, you know, see if you are at risk of disease. But just kind of draw back a little bit. How do we calculate our BMI? So firstly, there is uh, on the web, uh, on the internet, you can find BMI calculators really, really simply. So just type that into a Google search and they'll come up. Even the... Um, NHS one uh, is probably the best to go to. But if you were to calculate it without a online calculator, what are we looking at? So BMI, the, the calculation is your weight in kilogram divided by your height squared. So height times height. So for example, I am currently 79 uh, kilograms and I'm about five foot eight on a good day, which translates to <laughs> about, <laughs> if I'm still on a chat, no, um, um, <laughs> um, I'm about 1.7 meters. So I would times that by two initially, which, sorry, not times that by two, times it by each other. So 1.7 times 1.7, which equals 3.0976 to be precise. Um, I would then take my weight, which is 79 kg at the moment, and divide it by that calculation that I did earlier, height by height, which again, 3.0976. When I divide that number, I get 25.5. 5. 
um, which is slightly different to what I got on the NHS calculator, which actually calculated it to be a slightly higher. So on the NHS calculator um, on the website, it actually came up as 26.3. So there's a little bit of discrepancy there, but the NHS website, they look at different things such as ethnicity um, and age as well. So I think that probably goes into the calculation. Which would put that, that's incredible because I think if I looked at mine, uh, my BMI, that still puts you and me both in the overweight category. And you are a fit, healthy, thin man with a high <laughs> metabolism. And per the NHS calculator, because they also ask you for exercise, the amount of exercise you do every week, don't they? As part of that from memory. Uh, they do, actually. Yeah. So at the end, also, they ask you how active you, you are. So there's like three levels, inactive, active, very active. Um, I put very active because I do consider myself to be quite a uh, active chap. So it's incredible that level. So you, who is a very, very fit, healthy, slender human being with big guns, <laughs> that put <laughs> that puts you into the overweight category. And again, looking at mine, I'm. On the, on the tail end of the overweight category, almost into the severely overweight category. And it tells me to be in my healthy weight range, I need to weigh, to get into that weight range, eight stone, 10 pounds, between eight stone, 10 pounds, and 11 stone, 11 pounds, which I think my head alone weighs 12 <laughs> stone. So that's, that's just your beard, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's incredible that this is the gauge that people and, and 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 medics use. It's it's insane. So for me, who still has a bit of a muffin top in my quest to be a body guy, would always be considered by the NHS to be overweight and at risk of because um, obviously the list of things on the website it's so it's things like heart issues, a stroke, type two diabetes. Yeah, I consider myself, I do half an hour to 60 minutes of exercise a day. I eat healthy, but because I am essentially a cereal box with arms and legs in my build, um, it, it's crazy that this is the gauge that people use. Yeah, so to give a um, some sort of baseline here, the BMI between, if your BMI is between uh, 18.5 and 24.9, that is considered to be a healthy weight. Anything under or over that would be considered to be either too thin or, again, overweight. Um, so, yeah, this is... So to kind of put to context as to why the BMI came around. So BMI actually works really well for what it's intended to do. Um, so it's, it's just uh, born to kind of measure rates of obesity in populations because it's a general measurement of obesity that works well for most people. Again, very easy to do um, and very little equipment to do it. So looking at changes in BMI level allow researchers to get a good, good idea of how rates of overweight and obesity differ over time or between populations. And that's really why it was developed in the first place. Um, BMI can also help your physician uh, gauge your general risk of obesity-related diseases through BMI is, you know, though the BMI is best used in combination with other measurements, which I'm going to get to in a moment, to get a more complete look at your health. So as you say, Stu, you know, the NHS and your GP will use these 
or use this method to be able to get a rough gauge of your general health. But initially it was formed to allow researchers to get an overall look at population. And and I think that over time things have have changed because let's look at rugby players for an example. These 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 ladies and gents who play this sport are top physical athletes, but because they uh, they have to depend on their position, so if they're going to be defensive, they like to be a bit stronger, you know, higher strength, bigger muscle mass. All of these rugby players, especially in the early, early, you know, if we're looking at even five, ten years ago, before health and fitness came in, they they would be bigger. And I know sports people are becoming leaner and, but essentially more strength driven in their training because the science and technology evolves. It allows people to train better with sports science. But how all these professional athletes would essentially be overweight? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this goes well for my next point. The BMI is a simple measurement of uh, weight versus your height, as we've mentioned already. It doesn't take into account exactly where the weight come from. So if it's lean tissue or fat, it doesn't discriminate. Uh, for this reason, you might have a normal healthy weight, in inverted commas, according to your BMI, but still face health issues um, due to excess body fat. For example, excess um, fat around the stomach, um, that can expand your waistline between uh, beyond, sorry, what is recommended for your gender. Um, so this can up your risk of obesity-related diseases, regardless of your BMI. So you might be within that green bracket, if you like, where it's safe. But if you've got a expanding waistline, that can actually lead to, uh, again, obesity-related diseases as well. And just to put it into consideration here, so again... Whilst I don't consider my my body type to be overly slender, I consider myself, especially in the last 12 months, I'm the fittest I've ever been. I work out a lot more. Obviously, over the last couple of weeks, I've been mildly indulgent, so the scales have gone a bit in the wrong direction. But again, it's a marathon, not a sprint, as we've said before. And I know to you know how to turn this round and sort of be a bit more disciplined with my eating. Now, all the good stuff's uh, coming to an end. Obviously, Easter might be a little bit of a, a stumbling point but I'm not going to deprive myself of those things but looking at this sort of the NHS chart I would have to lose the equivalent of three stone or let's say 42 pounds to even touch that healthy body weight body weight I would need to be 11 stone 11 pounds to just touch into that healthy weight so that would mean realistically I would have to lose a pa- o- over a pound a week for the rest of the year if my goal by the end of 2021 was to have a healthy body weight which is crazy because that i mean that would still be you know it'd be great if i could do it but i think then if people look at this so for example i quickly did this on my phone and the word wording at the bottom tells me i need to aim to lose nine pounds um to to go there but even if i lost nine pounds so what i've quickly done is i've taken nine pounds off my current weight and then it would come up saying you're still overweight you're still at risk you need to lose nine pounds Mm. so it is an important guide to give you a benchmark but 
and again, I think, as you said, waistline seems to be the big thing to look at here as well. It is. And, you know, to touch on your point there, um, just before Christmas, I was about, I'm about 12 and a half stone at the moment. I was 13 stone just before Christmas. And I would consider myself to have been in sort of the best shape I could be at the time, um, just in terms of I was working very hard in the gym. So I felt great and you know, I felt like I, I looked great as well. But it was, um, you know, if you were to look at the BMI um, calculation, I'd actually be creeping into obese um, from my height. So it's kind of a um, kind of difficult one to balance, really, when you look at it. But again, while BMI might, you know, underestimate the risk of people with normal weight, with high body fat, so it can overestimate the risk of uh, muscular healthy people as well. Someone putting serious time in a weight room like uh, you have been, Stu, and you will be over the next year as well for your body guide project. Um, you know, that pushes their BMI into the overweight or obese category, um, you know, even if they carry very little body fat and therefore have a generally a lower risk of obesity related diseases than someone at the same weight with more fat tissue. So. The solution really is to take a holistic approach to measurement. So you've already mentioned um, measuring your waistline. So that's a, a good way of doing it. So take a more holistic approach and use several measurements to assess your weight and health. In addition to the BMI, because certainly not knocking the BMI, it's there for a purpose. It does help kind of have a general overview. Um, and then, you know, with your GP's knowledge, they can further assess the situation. Or again, for researchers, they can use that um, for population research too. Um, but also consider your waist size to ensure that you're under the recommended waist size for your gender. Um, so for females, that's 30, 35 inches. And for males, that's 40 inches. Do you have any idea of what your waist size is at the moment, Stu? Uh, not sure. I mean, I currently walk around in sort of 36-inch waist jeans. Mm -hmm. So that's a good start on that side of things but obviously you don't tend to wear your jeans around your waist measurement which i believe is just above the belly button isn't it around to get an accurate waist measurement would you say yeah that's right so yeah if you did want to do this at home measure your waist uh, just around the top of the belly button um, as she quite rightly says jeans usually sit on the hip which is slightly lower down so if you did want to try this at home um, grab yourself a tape measure and, and a partner or a friend and if you just measure around the waist there and again for uh, women it's 35 inches or under to be in a healthy range um, for men anything over 40 inches is unhealthy so just to give you some sort of idea there so you know instead of measuring weight loss and this is kind of the way that I would suggest people look at this you know, instead of being hung up about measuring weight loss in terms of where you fall in the BMI scale, look at combination of pounds and inches lost. So you can measure your waistline, your um, biceps, your thighs, your hips, um, and maybe kind of look at how they decrease over time as well. And also consider a professional body fat measurement as well to get an accurate look at where your body fat level is healthy or not and we've actually done this together before haven't we whilst we're doing pt sessions yeah and it was it was a really interesting insight to it because as you said whilst um my body fat went down 
it didn't go down as much as I thought it would, but then some of the other dimensions which we were looking for, so sort of um, sort of the bicep width and everything, it, they all altered at different times. So as we've mentioned before on the pod, weight and measurements change in different places at different times throughout the exercise as, as you go through. But when it's safe to do so, if, if you can find um, uh, a coach or a trainer or a, or a medical professional to do this for you, it's always worth having that little test because it doesn't take long. Um, the the pincers are always entertaining, having someone you know grip against muffin tops. It's always <laughs> it's always good fun for everyone. Um, but one question before we finish off on this topic: so obviously a lot of uh, people, it's the weight issue that puts strain on the heart, pumping blood round the body, and as we've already touched on, if people are carrying a lot of lean muscle mass and their their scales potentially may be higher than those who've got a a lower weight but carrying more body fat, are there still risks to being very muscly but carrying a lot of lean muscle and having a higher weight on your heart to to put to pump the body around? Because obviously one of the big risks obviously of having that higher weight is the strain it puts on your heart and some of your organs. Are you still risking having you know, heart problems by having that level of muscle mass and carrying around that rather than having a lower weight but a little bit more body fat? I think you probably can. I'm not an expert in this field by any means uh, with regard to what that might entail. But I think... You can, but as long as it's not excessive. And I think when we start thinking about bodybuilders who are excessively heavy for their frame, we're probably looking at creeping into um, other ways to gain weight as well. So steroids, for example. That's probably when you start to look at um, excessive weight through musculature. Um, if you're in that healthy range where maybe you're, you know, maybe... A stone overweight because of your frame and your um, the amount of muscle that you're carrying, you're probably get you are going to be okay. But anything that's excessive, that might sort of cause issues in the future. Um, but looking at you know ways to do this healthily again without being too hung up on scales and BMIs and falling into the you know so-called right category look at ways just to be able to look after yourself and reward yourself um you know reward yourself for making healthy meals at home for the week rather than as you touched in in the uh, food and news earlier eating out or going to restaurants um you know reward yourself for eating your recommended intake of vegetables for the day um or work towards something particular so if you have a goal in mind maybe try to run a little faster or further without losing your breath or I don't know for you Stu you know, try lifting a little heavier weight during your workouts as you progress as well and, and celebrate those achievements rather than trying to sort of check the boxes of being normal weight uh, when it comes to BMI so again it's that holistic view yes keep an eye on um, measurements and things like that because that's a really good way to kind of track your progress but also look at the physical stuff that you're doing too and try to have a overall view of everything you're achieving and when you're doing well give yourself a little pat on the back the question is though is this week's recipe of of the week going to impact my bmi in any way shape or form <laughs> well it's certainly not going to help you fall into the green category on the BMI calculation <laughs> um no so this week 
uh, I've chosen a Easter special for everyone. Oh, very nice. So, yes, we've got Easter this weekend. We will all be celebrating and um, I don't think the weather's going to be quite as nice as it has been over the past couple of days. However, I'm sure it'll be a lovely time by all anyway. And this week I've ordered a Easter weekend veg box from um, a company called Foodery, which is based in Kent. Uh, so if you check out their website, fooderyhomedeliveries.com, if you want to um, get a veg box, they also do different snacks and meats that they can send directly to your door as well. And we've actually picked two different uh, boxes this week. So we've got a Easter picnic box, which contains things such as duck and orange pate. Um, we've got Lancashire cheese, hummus, olives, oat biscuits, uh, grapes, crisps, all these nice uh, savory things. And we also, the second one, we have a Easter half leg of lamb roasting box as well. So we've got our lamb, We've got potatoes, parsnips, carrot, carrots, uh, cabbages, cauliflowers, green beans, garlic and rosemary as well. And that is quite a lot of food for two people plus a cat. So I thought, <laughs> how, how can we use up some of the inevitable leftovers? So this week we are going to be cooking lamb and red wine stew with fluffy dumplings. Yes, fluffy dumplings are one of the best creations in this world. I am so happy that dumplings have made it into that food podcast recipe of the week. I am very excited by this. This will be the first time I make dumplings and the first time in a long time I've eaten dumplings as well. So I'm very much looking forward to this. So this is a slow cooked stew. It's very simple to prepare. And also, if you do happen to have a lamb roast over the weekend, this is going to be perfect for leftovers uh also on the website is a jamie oliver recipe i seem to quite like his recipe so i've gone back to him a couple of times now there are options there so you can either have this with a creamy mash on top but in our option this week we are going to have a stew so excitingly uh, celebrated there we're going to be having the fluffy dumplings so hopefully a good one to be able to use up some of the uh food leftovers over the weekend and also Nice and tasty, and dumplings are something I'm very much looking forward to trying and making. Oh man, dumplings are the best. I am very excited. I know dumplings, my daughter's eaten dumplings before, so she might get involved in this. She may not like things, because obviously as it's a stew, it's going to be everything mixed together. But if I just try and get her involved in the cooking process, she might get involved. And the good thing again, as you said, about an Easter weekend being a slow-cooked dish... You can pop it on during the day. Go and do your Easter egg hunts. Leave it cooking away. And I am very excited for this. So we will post this recipe out on our social media platforms at That Food Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, again, it's the best place to interact with us. Thank you very much if you shared your images of cooking our recipe of the week, our babuti this week. Um, if you gave it a go, we're going to give it a try in retrospect after hearing how much we liked it and it got a Huntley handshake so that means it must be a great dish um, <laughs> let us know, send us a pictures, interact with us, um, if you like what we've done in the pod, uh, leave us a five star review, it really helps on our algorithm and helps us get found um, hello to all of our listeners around the world especially, you know, if you we've got Indonesian listeners now, we've got listeners in India, we've got, li again, even more listenership in the US So, and also to everyone in the UK and Ireland who listens to us as well, thank you very much for your ongoing support and we'd love to see what you've been cooking, so interact with us on our social media platforms, please 
Yes, indeed. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week. And goodbye.